open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew 8. Uh, we are working our way through the miracles of Jesus through the lens of Matthew in the morning, and we're looking at the miracles of Jesus through the lens of John in the evening. Uh, so Matthew chapter 8. We look at the cleansing of the leper last week, and now we want to look at uh, the centurion and his servants, as well as Peter's mother-in-law. So, uh, if you will, uh, stand with me out of reverence for God's holy word. Matthew chapter 8, we will start in verse 5, go down to verse 17. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. He said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. But only say the word, my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. To my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west, recline at the table, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. To the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. When Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons. He cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, uh, we ask as always you would open our hearts that we would receive your word, our mind that we would understand it, uh, our, our eyes that we would see your glory, our ears that we would hear and heed, our mouth we would speak of the hope that is within us for a world that so desperately needs to hear it. And may you open our hands and our feet that we will go in obedience to Christ. Lord, this is your work, and we ask that you would do it. May I decrease so that you can increase. In the name of your Son, we pray. Amen. See you. Have there been moments in your life where you thought, I will never be the same as a result? Uh, I suspect I could pick some of those, right? Maybe it was whenever you first met your spouse, uh, maybe you felt that. They probably didn't, but maybe you felt that, right? Uh, certainly the day of your wedding, like after today, things will never be the same, hopefully for, for the better. Um, but, uh, uh, or, you know, um, I, I know that whenever um, I found out that my wife was pregnant first time around, and uh, I, I thought, well, well, now I'm just nervous, right? I know nothing about babies. And then she, she took me to, uh, we had, she had a little uh, radar gun, and went to uh, do our uh, baby registry, and she was looking at everything we needed. I was looking at what everything costed, right? I mean, good night. That is just cray-cray, right? I mean, it's just absolutely ridiculous. But it really hit me, uh, not with all that stuff, right? It really hit me when we went in for the first ultrasound. Uh, you, you really see, that is, that is your, your, your little baby we found out was boy, and uh, now I'm going to be a dad, and... Uh, well, you realize, man, things will never be the same after this. I, I, I don't know what it would be for you, but let me ask that. Have you ever encountered Jesus and you discovered things will never be the same again? 
What you get here is a series of stories, two main stories, but others included, to where when they encountered Jesus, nothing was ever the same. Notice in verses 5 to 13, we, we meet the centurion and his boy slave. Now, again, there are two characters, right? One a centurion, the other a paralytic slave. Let's start with the centurion. We, we meet him starting in verse 5. And to say that a centurion in Israel was an outsider is an understatement. Notice what it is that we discover about this man. First, he was a Gentile, thus outside of the covenants. Right? That's a problem, right? So, so Jews believe that we're God's people, and if you're not a Jew, you're not God's people. End of story, right? And there's not a whole lot of hope for you. Sure, there were, there were uh, proselytes, Gentiles, who came into the covenant, but even then, you, 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 you stayed at a distance from God. Jews had access to the temple that Gentiles didn't have. So there's Jews, there's Gentiles. Not only that, he was a Roman soldier, thus worse than a Gentile. Remember that, that the Romans had, were occupying the Israelites. And so if you were a Roman, not only were you a dirty Gentile, but you were the enemy of God. You were subjugating the people of God. Not only was he a Roman soldier, you know, one who is simply following orders. Bad enough, but he's just following orders. But he's a Roman satyrian. That is one who is in charge of a hundred Roman soldiers, which means not only was he following orders, he was giving them. And part of his orders was to continue the subjugation of the people of God. And notice, fourthly, he was a Roman centurion in Israel, right? So, so, so it's not that he's subjugating uh, people over in Crete, people in Ephesus, people uh, eventually in Britain, right? But, but he is subjugating the people of God in the promised lands, Finally, there is hint. I said he was a Gentile, but there's a very good hint he may be a Samaritan. And the reason we think this, he's, he's either a Gentile or Samaritan, is because the way the Roman system worked is you didn't just get, go to high schools, recruit students, and then take them to another city. Rather, the Roman uh, system would come into your town, and there you would train uh, among your, your peers, right, or your, your hometown. So being that this guy is, is stationed here uh, likely implies he grew up in this area. And even though Samaritans are half-breeds, probably worse than Gentiles, nevertheless, he, you would think he would be sympathetic towards the people of God in the promised land. No, he is sided with the Romans. This would be like a tax collector who, though grew up a Jew, sided with the occupiers. No wonder in his commentary, Philip says, as far as the majority of Jews were concerned, the centurion was as bad as the leper. The leper was outside the camp. The centurion, he adds, was outside the covenants. So the centurion, we are to see, is the worst of the worst. Now, how Jesus treats this man is scandalous, right? Because we expect Jesus to buy into the tribalism of his day. You know, my tribe, which could be defined by nationality, race, religion, politics, worldview, upbringing, geography, favorite sports team, especially if they're blue, whatever it might be, my tribe are the good guys. Their tribe, whatever their tribe might be, must be the bad guys. You've heard me describe it as an old Western. You know, my team wears the white hats. Their team wears the black hats. You're not supposed to like people who wear black hats and Westerns, right? That's tribalism. 
Now, tribalism fuels division, hatred, and violence. Why? Because at the end of the day, you believe that if that other tribe didn't exist, all of our problems would be solved. It fuels division. Now, if only I could think of an application in that regard. <laughs> I am just struggling with it. But notice Jesus' response to the centurion is unexpected. He welcomes him, right? He, he welcomes him in to have this conversation, and he treats him as he would any other Jew, much like he did the leper, much like he did in preaching the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 to 7 of Matthew. Now, one thing that is strange, I was reading this this, this week, that often the centurions in the New Testament are good guys. It really is, is a bizarre thing to find. Uh, for example, at the end of Matthew, in chapter 27, who is it that says, surely this is the Son of God? What's, what's, his, what's his office, vocation? It's a Roman centurion. He confesses for Matthew the entire point of the gospel of Matthew. Matthew tells you all of this to get to the end, and on the lips of a Roman centurion is the thesis. This is Jesus, the Son of God. In Acts chapter 10, we meet another centurion, a man by the name of Cornelius. You remember that story, right? He's the one that helps Peter see that the gospel isn't defined by Jewish dietary laws to the glory of God, right? And finally, Acts 22, it was a centurion that stopped the flogging of Paul because Paul revealed he was a citizen. The centurions are often viewed in the New Testament as good guys, or at least in their stories, they are presented as the good guys. But you see, tribalism refused to see people as individuals, but rather ties them to entire groups. So instead of seeing this man, we see what he represents. That's the problem with tribalism. You know, we do this all the time, don't we? Democrats are anti-American communists. Therefore, you're an anti-American communist if you don't blast them on Facebook. Amen? Republicans are racists who hate poor people. Therefore, you're a racist who hates poor people if you don't foam at the mouth, right? Isn't this how it works? Coastal elites are snobs that don't care about working folk. Fly over country as a bunch of backwoods rednecks that don't believe in progress. Any of this sound familiar? But the gospel transforms all of this. Jesus doesn't see class. He doesn't see vocation. He doesn't see any of that. What he sees is the man standing before him. He sees someone in need of a savior. Do not let the gospel to become another tribe. If you see someone and think the gospel is too good for them, you need to repent. Paul makes this point in Galatians chapter 3. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ. So we not only meet a centurion here, we meet the paralytic. Notice there, verse 6, the centurion describes him as my servants. The word literally is child. And in what he's describing here isn't that it's his biological child, but that it is his boy slave. It was common at this time for children to be slaves, either because they were born into slavery or because their family, likely their father, would have sold them into slavery, and likely the entire family in order to pay a debt. 
So to have a boy slave would not have been unusual. MacArthur is actually quite helpful here. He says that, that the slaves were often considered the lowest of the lowest class. That's not always the case. If you were a slave of Caesar, you had some status. But a typical slave was quite low in social status. And MacArthur quotes the following Greek leaders. First of all, it's Aristotle, who wrote, quote, There could be no friendship and no justice towards inanimate things. Indeed, not even towards a horse or an ox or a slave. For master and slave have nothing in common. A slave is a living tool, just as a tool is an inanimate slave. Gaius, who was a Roman lawyer, stated, quote, we, may not, we may note that it is a universally accepted that the master possesses the power of life and death over his slave. That is Roman law. The only difference, he goes on to add, between a slave and a beast and a cart is that the slave talks. Cato, another Roman writer, wrote, quote, Look over your livestock and hold a sail. Sell your worn-out oxen, your blemished cattle, your blemished sheep, wool, hides, any old wagons, old tools, an old slave, a, a sickly slave, and whatever else is superfluous. But this centurion doesn't treat his, this child like this. He's concerned for him, and he wants to see that he is healed. Now, we don't know the cause of the boy's paralysis, but what we do know is that because of his paralysis, he is a picture of hopelessness. He will never walk again or shake anyone's hands. He's fully dependent on someone else. To see a doctor, he must be taken. To eat, he must be fed. To go to a Galilean healer, his master must speak on his behalf. Right? This is the definition of hopelessness. So there in verse 7, despite the nature of the centurion's social standing and the nature of the boy's disease, Jesus agrees to come and heal the boy, right? And that's what we've come to expect in Matthew's gospel. Here comes the leper. He's right there in front of Jesus. Jesus goes over to touch him. So what does we find? The centurion comes and says, look, I couldn't bring him with me. He's paralyzed. I need you to heal my servant. So we expect Jesus to, to start walking towards to touch the paralytic. Um, in fact, notice what Jesus does here. Jesus answers a statement. Did you notice that? Look at it again there, verse, um, verse 6. Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. There is no question mark at the end of that sentence. I know I'm from a rural community, but I'm pretty sure that a question requires a question mark at the end of a sentence. There is no question mark because he doesn't ask a question. It's a statement. And notice what Jesus does there. Yeah, I'll come heal him. Well, I didn't ask you to come heal him. Yeah, I'm going to come heal him. It's sort of like a lesson you learn early on in marriage, right? right? In fact, this, this past Christmas, I got my wife something, um, and she says, well, you shouldn't have got me this. It was too expensive, you know, all the stuff women usually say. And, and here's, here's the thing, right? Women will never come up. You young men, you need to write this down. They will never come up and say, honey, for Christmas, for Valentine's Day, for birthday, for Mother's Day, or after spending two hours with your mother, what I want as a gift is X, right? You're never going to have that conversation. What you're going to get is a casual flyby. You know what? Uh, this surely would be nice, right? And, it, and, and you're usually given that when you're asleep, right? Or, or when you're on the phone with someone else and you're deaf in one ear so you hear nothing in there except the person who's in the other ear, right? Those sort of moments, right, is when you're given this. So that when you get them that and they open the present, like, how did you know? Which meant, say, you're clueless. I just assumed you didn't get the hint. Now, what were we talking about? I had to get that 
off my chest. But it, it, it's encouraging, isn't it, to know that God knows what you need even when you don't make your request clearly known in perfect King James English, God already knows your needs. Isn't that good to see in the text? It's right there if you look for it. Now, notice the centurion's response is very uh, interesting. He had faith that Jesus was more than just a faith healer you see on TV. Rather, he has the power of God. Just say that he's healed and it'll be done. I understand how those authority things work because I'm a man under authority with authority. If I'm told to do something, I go do it. If, if I go tell the soldiers under, uh, under me to go do something, they go do it. So too, if you have the power over life and death, creator of the universe, I know if you would just speak, it will be done. Notice here, he models a humbled faith. He comes to Jesus knowing that he, he's an outsider, but he comes to Jesus nonetheless, knowing he is in the presence of God. Don't, you, uh, don't come under my roof. I, I don't deserve something like that. Just say the words. And I wonder how often our prayers reveal such a humbled faith from an outsider like this. Well, Jesus' response is, is quite devastating. He could simply have marveled at the man's faith and said nothing else, right? Just put a period there in a discussion, he's done. Instead, he claims he has not found such faith in all of Israel. Now that's astounding language, isn't it? Because Israel is where one would expect to find such faith. He should have found it among the Jews, but he didn't. Makes you wonder. If Christ were to show up in this congregation, would he find such faith here? Perhaps most devastating is what he says here at the end. Look, look at verse 11. I'll tell you, many will come from east and west, recline at the table, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Do you notice there? He says, in the kingdom of God, you'll find there are outsiders who will be made insiders. And there are some of those who thought they were on the inside who will be revealed to be on the outside. Striking language. And you see there, verse 13, the boy slave was healed at that moment. The story then switches to uh, Peter and his mother-in-law. Now, there's a couple of things. We, I think we can look at this real quick. A couple of things to note here. First of all, Peter had a wife. In fact, the Bible is very clear that Peter had a wife. That meant the first pope, or so I've been told, had a wife. Just don't tell that to the last 100 of them. But uh, he had a wife, and Paul mentions his wife. And there were some implications that, that his family traveled with him in, in the Gospels and, and, and in Acts. But nevertheless, uh, he, he had a wife. And, and, as, and because he, since he had a wife, he had a mother-in-law. And he wanted his mother-in-law to feel better. I'm sure that would have made Thanksgiving a whole lot easier. So Peter had a wife. Secondly, her illness is a real mystery. It just says that she was sick, sick with fever. Um, and and um, uh, no other details are given. She is bedridden, debilitated, and sick. And then notice, thirdly, Jesus touched her. Now, we remember that phrase from the leper, don't we? Just as Jesus touched a leper, so he, teaches, he touches uh, Peter's mother-in-law. Now, that is fairly scandalous. Men do not go where women are, are, are lying, and nor do they touch women at this time. But Jesus, he goes in, sees that she is sick, and he touches her. And she responds by um, serving Jesus and his disciples. 
And this is followed there by verse 16. It's a summary statement. Matthew loves these. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons. He cast out the spirits with the word and healed all were sick. Now you remember last week we said that the healing of the lepers, the first miraculous narrative of Jesus, right? I'm discounting the virgin birth. This is Jesus performing miracles. The lepers, the first narrative. If you go back to chapter four, in fact, this, this may be worth looking at. Go back to chapter four. It's two pages to your left. Um, for, for those from public schools and rural communities, two is double one. Um, chapter 4, uh, starting in verse 23. He went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease, every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. Great crowds followed him from Galilee and Decapolis and Jerusalem, Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. And then we launch into the Sermon on the Mount. So this is the first clear reference that Jesus heals people. But we don't get a narrative of that until chapter 8, by which we get three narratives, the leper, the centurion servant, and Peter's mother-in-law, followed by another summary. People were bringing their sick and their demonized to Jesus, and he heals them, right? But the purpose of the narratives, as we said last week, is found in verse 17. Let's read it again. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. I want you to notice something in these first 17 verses. When people encountered Jesus, they discovered two things. Number one, they encountered a creator. They encountered their creator. In fact, this I, I would like to show you this on the screen, but I think you see it here on the page. Uh, this, these stories are chiastic. And if you come on Wednesday nights, you, you're familiar with that phrase. That is to say, is a story where, where you know, the, the first part of the story matches the very end of the story. And then it keeps going all the way down until you, in the middle is the main emphasis. It's the one unique part, right? So, so you have a structure here. You have A, B, and A. What you see in part A is then repeated at the end of the story. I think I can show it to you, right? The leper, how did Jesus heal him? He touched the leper. Peter's mother-in-law, how did he heal her? He touched her. And right here in the middle is something different. He doesn't touch, he speaks. Now, in the Bible, when God speaks, he speaks as creator, right? In Genesis chapter 1, and God said, let there be light. God said, let the firmament separate. God said, and he created man and every plant in the field and every animal and bird and all that sort of stuff, right? God speaks things into existence, right? He, he isn't starting from with, with something and then manipulating it. Rather, God creates out of nothing, and that's where you get creation. But it's not the only way God creates. In fact, sometimes God touches. Genesis chapter 2. How does God create man? He takes the dust of the earth and he forms man. From dust you came, from dust you will return. Eve, how does he create Eve? He performs surgery on Adam by removing a rib. And from there, he fashions for Adam a wife. So it isn't just that God speaks as part of his creative act, but that God 
touches. So what do we get in this story? Through chiasm, what it is we get that God, God in Christ touches the sick and creates healness. He creates an, a whole body. And, and, and then he will also speak. And what he finds is he creates a whole body. A body that was immovable is now mobile. That isn't the only thing they encounter in the story. When people encounter Jesus, they encounter not just their creator, they encounter their redeemer. Notice again, verse 17 glues the three narratives together. What you're not supposed to read is, uh, Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law because Jesus takes away all of our illnesses and bears all of our, all of our diseases. Rather, we are to see the leper, the, the centurion's servant, Peter's mother-in-law, the summary statement, climaxing in, here's the point, dear reader. Jesus, in fulfilling of Isaiah 53, the, the suffering servant chapter, prophesying about how he would save the world, he takes upon himself our illnesses and our diseases. In fact, we see the same language of speaking and touching in the Old Testament in relation to God as Redeemer. Let me give you an example of touching. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 7. You remember the story, right? Isaiah is in the presence of God. He sees, holy, holy, holy is, is the Lord God Almighty. And, and that's hymn number two in your hymn book, I believe. And, and, and what is it that Isaiah says? He says, I, I shouldn't be here. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell with other people of unclean lips. And remember, what is it that God does to the angels? He touches Isaiah's lips and says, you're clean. You're clean. So is the same prophet who said that Christ, that is the Messiah, will come and he will take upon himself our, our illnesses and our diseases. So then, no wonder the leper is touched as Isaiah was touched. And it's no accident then that the leper must offer that sacrifice we talked about last week. What about the Roman centurion and his servant? This isn't just an illustration of kindness, but grace. A grace that saves sinners, outsiders like you and me. And so by faith, which the man demonstrates, he is brought into the kingdom of God. And the means of that reconciling work is what? Verse 17, Christ upon a cross, bearing for us the metaphor of illnesses and sicknesses, our sin. Peter's mother-in-law, again, she is touched by a Savior, Christ who saves. Although weak, she is made strong in Christ. He takes upon ourselves, upon himself, our infirmities, and he carries away our diseases. You see, you can't understand the miracles without coming to the cross. And when we encounter Jesus, we don't encounter a co-pilot. We don't encounter a buddy. We don't encounter a friend. What we encounter is our living creator, redeemer. We're the leper. We're the paralytic. We're the centurion. We're the sick mother-in-law. We're the demonized, the sick, the hurting, the hopeless we're the outsider. We're the outcast. And only by the blood of the Lamb is that ever remedied. It's not the only thing we discover here. When we encounter Jesus, we're never the same. In fact, again, these stories are put together. And notice what happens. When the leper encounters Jesus, what does he do? He worships. He worships. So much so that Christ sends him to the temple. And there a sacrifice would be offered, and there he would worship the one who healed him. 
The centurion encounters Jesus. What, what does he do? He obeys. No, 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 you understand. You're a man of faith. I've not found faith like this before. Go home. He's healed. What does Peter's mother-in-law do when she encounters Jesus? She serves. She doesn't get up and say, thank you for healing me. I've had a long day and now I've got to call the insurance company and cancel all that. Rather, she realizes she's encountered a creator savior who's redeemed her. She gets up and she serves. I think I can prove this to you, that this application isn't just drawn because I needed a third point of application. Keep reading, verse 18. You, you tell me if you can find this in the story. I'm going to ruin next week's sermon. That's okay. You'll forget about it between now and then anyways. Verse 18. Now when Jesus saw a crowd, now we met that crowd, didn't we? The demonized, the sick, everyone are coming, hanging out with Jesus. And they're interrupting Peter's mother-in-law's house. Let me tell you, you don't invite your buddies over for your wife's uh, parents' house, right? <laughs> Unannounced, nuh-uh, right? You need at least three weeks, three weeks advance notice so they can clean the house, Right? Right? That's very important. But nevertheless, notice, crowds were coming around them. He gave orders to go over to the other side, and a scribe came up and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Right? And Jesus was like, Nah, you won't. <laughs> right? Like, like, nah, you won't. Okay? He said, That foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Right? He said, I ain't got a house, I'm homeless. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Now, I'm just going to let you assume the worst about that guy. We'll talk about it maybe next week. Maybe we won't. We'll just see. Just leave that hanging. What did Jesus say to him? Look, look, here's the thing. Follow me. Follow me. Let the dead bury their own dead. Notice here the theme. After you encounter Jesus at the cross, what is the message? Follow me. And you can't separate those two. Separate, yes, but inseparable. They become one flesh. Yes, we come to Christ and we encounter our Creator Redeemer. But upon encountering our Creator Redeemer, we are transformed by the, and, and we become this sort of disciple that simply follows Jesus. Maybe you still don't believe me about the text. What's the next verse say? When he got into the boat, his disciples followed. And notice now the story. Jesus sets people free from sickness and illness and demons and disease. But he leads them into a storm. The question is, when you encounter Jesus, will you follow him either way? That's the point of the story. It's a challenge for you and me, isn't it? Because many of us, we say we follow Jesus until things get difficult. And our prayers aren't answered the way we think God should answer our prayers. Have you encountered Jesus? When I look at Christians who look too much like the rest of the world, I wonder, have we encountered Jesus? When, when we think, act, and speak like the broken and the lost, I ask myself, have we truly encountered Jesus? We tolerate a declining church in a wicked nation. Ask yourself, have we truly encountered Jesus? When any excuse robs us of worshiping with the people of God, can we honestly say to ourselves, we have encountered Jesus? When you look in the mirror this morning, this evening, 
Ask yourself, have I encountered Jesus? Have I encountered Jesus? Let's pray. Father, as